Hello and welcome to A Life Curated. My name is Nolan Brown. I'm an art dealer with the podcast. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by jeweler Cora Shabani. Born and raised in Switzerland, Cora studied art history in Florence and New York, then went on to complete her GIA course. Having flirted with becoming a package designer, in 2002, Cora launched her eponymous jewellery brand in Mayfair, London. Cora's highly collectible pieces have garnered a loyal international following who love her playful twists on contemporary design that combine rich colour, bold forms and graphic lines. Her latest collection, Pottering Around, a garden-inspired collection that trades on the idea of, and I quote, uncontrollable plants set in rigid sculptural vessels. The daughter of prominent art dealer Bruno Bischofberger, Cora grew up in a home overflowing with magnificent art and objects from ancient treasures, collectible furniture to masterpieces by Baskin Warhol. Atori Sotsats wrote the foreword to her first book, Valence, and was one of many artists and designers who frequented her childhood home. Her latest book to celebrate her 20th year in business, Cora Shivani Jewels, is out now. Recorded from Cora's home, this is A Life Curated. Cora, thank you so much for sitting down for this episode of Life Curated. I am thrilled that you agreed and I can't wait to get into it. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, as I always start with the first question, what was your very first art memory? I do remember the first time I was in a place and I kind of realized the access I had or exposure to art unlike other people. So I remember, although I grew up with art all over and the smell of you know turpentine and paint is a childhood smell. If I go into a studio, it's a very nostalgic and childhood positive smell. And I, you know, 90% of our holidays was centered around art. But when I was 14, it was Easter, and we were invited, uh, we were in the mountains, and we were invited to someone around that didn't live far from us for a big Easter celebration where a lot of people were invited. Uh, his, his children and his grandchildren were close to my age, a bit younger, and we played, and, and we went there, and I kind of, for the first time, was aware in this home that, you know, we had, there was a huge Renoir, and a Van Gogh here and another Van Gogh there and that these you know the paintings which I'd really only ever seen in in a museum of this caliber and I knew there was another great Van Gogh apparently just upstairs and you went into the dining room and it was just one absolute masterpiece for another I'd never I kind of it was the first time I was like wow you know I'm this is kind of it's wonderful that's you know this is just a another Easter and we're all running around or you know I'd been there many times as a child before for Easter's but the only thing I remember is having huge bags of Easter bunnies and chocolates going and for this was the first time I was in the same place and I was actually conscious of the art hanging around because in the past I was outside and Easter and chocolate was the highlight and this time I kind of realized actually the art's pretty unbelievable but this was in a private home not in a a private home yeah wow um, I think that would be hard to beat for any other guest. Um, what was the art scene like for you growing up? There's no such thing as the art scene. Did you follow your father to all the exhibitions? You know, when you were a child, you don't encourage or do or everything. We all just went to museums. We all, there's no art scene. Home was art. Everybody that came through the door. My father, he likes art. He's only happy when he talks about art. Maybe he likes to, he likes food and 
you know, a culture and likes to play cards. But generally, you know, he's and he loves sports. Um, but but reality is, it's, it was all art. You know, we went to the. I remember going, having to give a a talk. I was a German lesson. I was probably twelve, eleven, or something. And we all had to pick a subject to talk about. And I thought, oh, I'll talk about our weekend. We went to Berlin. And we'd gone to 11 museums in three days. And I knew that this wasn't normal. And just speaking about, just listing every museum I talked to basically took up the time that I had to give my entire talk uh, in German. And, you know, breakfast table, dinner table was my father just with auction catalogs. And his interests were so wide-spanning that it was cheaper to get all auction catalogs than just the ones. In those days, you could say, I want every Sotheby's catalog, not just what he wanted. Because the only thing he wasn't interested in was probably stamps and wine. And everything else, everything was looked through all the time and discussed. And he loved to have me guess, you know, take a catalogue and say, test me. You know, that, that's the kind of place I, I grew up with. And, and I learned to distinguish between different types of 18th century French furniture. Because I quite liked it. And so my father taught me the difference between, you know, if it was Transition or Empire or Louis XIV or Louis XVI or... Regency and and that was kind of so that's the kind of games I played with my father. Although we although we played backgammon and we did you know went swimming and cycling, but that was the kind of games I played with my father. Um, we'll get to jewelry in a second, but can you remember the first artwork that you bought? Well, I've been gifted a lot of art in my life, but the first time I bought an artwork was I, I was living in New York and I bought uh, an artwork by Greg Bogan who's a, an American artist that had done a show with my father's gallery. Um, and I knew because he lived in New York, he was a friend of ours and he had a, a show, I think it was at Leo Koenig at the time. And so I bought this medium kind of egg-shaped painting that was red and pink. You still have it? I still have it. It's in storage. But uh, we'll see, you know, things come and go, you know. Many people have things in storage, and that's just the nature of things. I mean, sure. you know, some people say you're not really a collector until you buy things that you can't hang. Really? I've never heard that. Well, otherwise you're, you know, are you collecting for collecting's sake or just because you want to decorate your home? I mean, mm -hmm. there's a distinction. One is you might like to decorate your home, but if you collect, it's, it's beyond just wanting to live with it. It, it becomes another idea beyond that but I also it depends on your means and I, I don't know so yeah Greg Bogan normally as a young child you get crayons and you draw on pieces of paper or even on the furniture but I came across something extraordinary which I hope you're okay to talk about was when a very very famous artist stayed at yours at Christmas and you made a painting with him um, could you go through that experience and tell us who it is you no know, I, I love drawing um, and I love painting and a lot of artists you know this is, I think, a different, you know, today artists belong to big galleries and they're taken care about by one person in the gallery, whereas my father, all the artists were close friends. I mean, every artist, we spent holidays, they came with their families on holidays with us. So a lot of them came and stayed with us in the mountains in St. Moritz, where my father had a house. Um, in the house, my father ended up building a studio because I think he got so fed up that he couldn't use his garage because everybody was painting in it that he then built a studio. But, um, you know, artists used to paint on the kitchen table and in the garage. And so I painted um, their photos of me on the laps of 
Clemente and Basquiat drawing on the kitchen table, but then we made a, a painting with Jean-Michel uh, and I in the in the garage. Which and is? I don't really remember much. You know, I was four, and I don't really remember much of the time. You know, as a lot of your memories are formed or what people tell you later, the only thing I kind of remember is that I thought he could paint much better than me, <laughs> which is kind of funny because everybody says he paints like a child. But for me, you know, there was an animal and I had kind of slight, you know, one leg is slightly behind the other and that was already way beyond my abilities. And and what's quite funny is actually looking at the painting today, I wrote Cora all over because I just learned to write my names. As little girls do, they write their names. And so actually he wrote Jean on the front of the painting too, which I don't think he ever signed any of his paintings at the front. And is it true that your father was so inspired by this collaboration, he then asked Warhol and Basquiat to create the collaboration paintings? Yes, this this painting inspired my dad to say, well, collaborations are so good. But originally he didn't just ask Warhol and Basquiat, he also asked Francesco Clemente. So the original idea of a collaboration was the three artists together. They each got a bunch of paintings and then swapped half to one artist and swapped the other to the artist. And then the last, they'd give it to the last, the painting on to the one person that hadn't done it before. So it was actually a three-way collaboration. Uh, and then Andy and Jean-Michel liked it so much that they continued to do it after that. Today, it's funny because collaborations is so much part of, you know, what brands do and artists do. But I think actually in that time, there wasn't, I don't think it was so commonplace at the time. Mm. And those paintings are very much part of my my childhood. It's the things that are very graphic and very simplistic. And actually, um, at that time, Jean-Michel then got Andy to start paint, not just silk screening, but going back to actually hand painting as well. And you and you mentioned now, you know, all brands collaborate. Uh, but actually, I I don't know of any artists really collaborating with others. It's it's. Maybe it's not as done as much as it was. Do you know, it's very back funny. I just saw a painting, which isn't a really collaboration or one artist defacing another one, where Damien Hirst gave Banksy a spot painting, and Banksy then put one of his graphic stencils onto the spot painting and called it spotless <laughs> um, because it was made, he put on it. So, in a way, that was an intentional collaboration, but in a way, at the back, of course, it's signed first by Damien and then with Banksy kind of uh, vandalized it or created his own work on top of it he signed it as well too so it doesn't happen very often because most artists have very high egos and it's very hard if someone then paints on top of you for you not to take you know to to get on top of it you know being a creative is so difficult there's so much competition at the beginning most people that collaborate today it's people from one part of the creative field with another part of the creative people. Someone that designs shoes with someone that designs, I don't know, books. But it's never kind of two people that design two fashion designers. It's always kind of people from slightly different mm. industries yeah. um, to kind of complement each other. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about jewellery now. And I've read your anniversary book, we'll call it, Cora uh, Giovanni Jewels. And there's a bit I love. Um, again, when it start from the start. And I'm quoting, from an early age, Cora was taught to look at everything with the critical eye of an art historian. A shoe, a sink, a painting or a jewel were all worthy of the same attention and each could be considered a work of art. Something that I find so prevalent in your uh, designs and your collections now. As well as design, colour and shape are what you're drawn to. Without giving too much away, how do you create a new collection? Oh, I don't know. Uh, 
it's very difficult and there's no strategy around it. I mean, I love looking at lots of jewellery, but I don't go to jewellery books and I don't go to a museum a bit like they told you in art school and say, take an idea and then derive from that. Because in the end of the day, everything then becomes a bit derivative. So I, I do look at a lot of jewellery and on a lot of jewellery books. I love looking at old jewellery books. But then when I actually go to designing, I let all of that information and knowledge sit in my subconscious rather than a bit like they say, you know, create a mood board and put this up and this is inspired. I mean, it happens by default, but I think it's something you just store, you store back because otherwise it becomes too influenced. So I've been working on some pieces um, using demoscening as a technique and, and using that in my jewelry, which is basically a technique used to put gold into steel. So when in the past, if you just didn't want to engrave into metal, but maybe a sword for a parade rather than actually for fighting, although they did it on Once to Fight too, they'd engrave into the top part of a sword and then carve into the recesses of that engraving and then hammer in gold and then polish it off. And so it looks like you've drawn with gold into steel. And we've rather than use steel, we've used aluminium, which of course in the past wasn't really around and for jewelry less heavy. And we've been able to draw with one metal into another metal. So I've made pendants and some rings with this, but they're all on for commission. And that just kind of happened because I liked going to the Wallace collection and one of my goldsmiths said, oh, isn't that technique cool? And I tried this out and I said, oh, let's try it out. And then I needed a anniversary present from my mother. So I said, okay, let's, she's turning 70, let me make her a pendant because I can use that as an excuse to make a prototype. They kind of sometimes snowballs. I, I bought a whole bunch of stones, rubies that I really liked where you can see the growth lines into it and if you cut it like slabs it kind of looks like a recess like a tunnel shape and I was going to create a collection called like back to the future which is actually just slabs of corundum or sapphires and rubies where you can see the growth lines so you have this tunnel effect but of course the ruby itself is ancient so it has this looking forward looking back but then I really like the stones but I haven't come up with a design that I really want to wear so if I don't get inspired and want to wear it there's no way I want other people to wear it or get inspired. So after starting on a new collection and that is going to be more gemstone focused and the designs of gemstones. So most jewelers like a certain types of gemstones and certain dealers that provide certain gemstones and then they run with that. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure there's someone out there, but not in a long time where a designer gets involved with a gem cutter and actually gets them involved not just in saying, oh, you've got this great design, you're going to custom cut the stones to fit the design, but actually we're going to think about gem cutting as being the integral or the main part of the design. On the design, I was talking to a jewellery journalist uh, recently, and they said that in a lot of contemporary jewellery at the moment, design is not something that they really take to. I find in your design that design is extremely important can you elaborate more on your design influences? I know Jean Desprez, for example, was your first introduction to art deco jewelry. Yeah, there's so much jewelry out there. It's a bit like clothes. You can make the essentials, which is like a white t-shirt, and you can make it with better fabric, nicer, and sit different, and A-line cut, whatever. But fundamentally, there's lots of white t-shirts out, and so I don't see any benefit in going out. It's a bit like designing a solitaire diamond ring that's set the same way again. I, I have no interest in that. That's not really jewelry design that's just making jewelry that's not mm. and it doesn't really 
stand the test of design. And I think, you know, design is essential because I want to be known for designing jewelry now. In 50 years, I want someone to look back and say, oh yeah, that's really early 2020s design, or rather than say, oh, that was who knows what. It's a bit like revival jewelry, like neo-Renaissance jewelry. I mean, it's kind of like, come on guys, like, you couldn't think of anything better but to kind of reshuffle someone else. And that's a bit of the problem today. We're all into sampling. It's like this endless sampling and sampling and sampling again. At some point, that also gets a bit boring. And so I guess, you know, if you get so hung up with having to do something new, you, you also get totally um, stuck and say, actually, I can't do anything ever again. I can't move on because it's not new enough or it could be a bit like this or it could be a bit like that or looks a bit like that. I mean... Everything's influenced by everything, and there's no such thing as being totally, utterly and unique. It just depends. Because of lockdown, what's happened to me now, I'm part of a, a jewelry club called Gemex. We've had a lot of different people talk about jewelry. I, I got them to have some great gem miners, and I've, you know, I studied gemology. In the jewelry world, the gems is a bit like in a restaurant business. People come for the food, but you make money with the alcohol. With jewelry, unfortunately, Nobody might want to talk about it. You make money with the gemstones. The only way to differentiate yourself from the next place is the design. But then again, with the gemstones, people just buy the gemstones. The jeweler never goes and says to the gem dealer, let's, let's change it around or let's focus and make people aware the history. You can tell how old the gem is from how it's cut. Everybody in the jewelry industry knows this that works in it. But the end consumer, I'm going to put four or 12 stones in one piece and everyone will be cut differently and everything looks differently. The end consumer has never been exposed to saying, hey, look, I cut the diamond bit different and everyone has a different picture. And that's really fascinating. And so in a way, it's just a band with a bunch of diamonds, but actually, but conceptually, it's going to be really different. And that's what excites me. And in your book, you reference Virgil Abloh uh, and how you love that he took luxury items and made them look every day. You have exquisite design, you, you use the most precious metals and stones, but they kind of can be worn every day. I, I launched my business, I was in my early 20s. Like, I'm not going to walk around with a big diamond ring. I didn't have the money to buy expensive stuff anyway, but I wanted stuff that I could wear every day and didn't draw attention to myself. And I really wanted to have the top quality craftsmanship work with much more simple and mundane materials, especially in the French jewelry world. There's a very hierarchical thing. It's like, there's joaillerie and bijouterie. I mean, nowhere in the world you have this hierarchy in jewelry. And most people, and I didn't understand, you know, when I went to Geneva years ago and I first wanted someone to make something, and they was like, oh, mais madame, c'est ça, nous fait pas ça, ça c'est, nous fait des joailleries, et ça c'est des bijouterie. And I was like, what in the world are they talking about? Like, who says that one's better than the other? Today, after having done speed dating with makers and, ateliers in Paris and all these kind of crazy things uh, in France. I understand joaillerie is really jewelry centered around stones and bijouterie is more design or, or where the metal is more a prominent part of the jewelry. And actually that is the true definition. In England, we try to people that don't really understand say fine jewelry versus jewelry. In America and Europe, you used to have different spelling for jewelry, which is why in my book I said jewel because it's a universal spelling. <laughs> Because otherwise, you know, do you make an American spelling for the book or the English spelling, which is just crazy in this world? I know, I know. I thought I was typing. I was doing loads of typos, but it's, uh, you're right. There's two different spellings. And the virtual upload, you know, when he died, I realized we were born the same year. 
you know, it's like, what is special? What is valuable? What do you want to wear? And it was the first, I mean, you know, you can go all overboard how much you're going to spend for a t-shirt or sneakers, even for jewel. But the idea is that you really want quality even on the everyday. Of course. It's great. Of course. On your right hand, you're wearing a piece from your eye collection. Am I right? Actually, today I just went out of the safe and I actually have two eyes on. Okay, you have a few. Okay, I thought you were about to say they're from uh, Copper Mold. You are the model for your brand. You suit it so well in a non-hubristic style. Like, it works so well. Like, I never think, oh, it's it's Quora, why is she using it? But I thought, wow, this looks so beautiful and it just, everything matches, your face and your jewellery. I, when I design jewellery, I've realised over the years, I've got to like it, I've got to want to wear it because otherwise it doesn't work. And I think as a brand, you know, if you're a brand and you try to accommodate everybody, you accommodate nobody and you have a certain style and that style, of course, is unlike a, a man maybe, I don't have a muse. I make jewellery that I'd want to wear <laughs> and I decide on a new collection, like, Actually, I haven't made a bracelet in a while. Let's make bracelets or let's make something. I haven't done brooches in a while. Actually, let's let's segue into that way. Or I haven't done something with lots of diamonds. And so I, I kind of do what I feel is right and very personal. And I think that works very well uh, and it's very authentic. And it's, and it's it's every time I think what I should do, then it, it always goes wrong. So I make jewels that I don't want to wear. And so clients are generally have similar outlooks to me as in they really care about design they really care about quality they like design in a in a in art in a general way mm. more than just about value or gemstones although some of my clients like the gemstones and design that's the ideal client and and have a knowledge and the more knowledgeable the person is about jewelry actually the better um, because they have a real understanding where i come from where the inspiration comes from and uh, and i have my pieces are not that inexpensive, so I don't have that many younger clients, but I have people who gift to their daughters. So I have had clients anywhere between the ages of 16 and 80. After a certain age, women usually end up having a certain amount of jewels and putting on rings becomes complicated that most women don't really care about jewelry after a certain age. They've either got it too much or they don't really go out anymore or just too complicated and they're more in the they're often at a time in their life where they think about divesting from objects rather than getting more. So I think my primary thing for my age is probably between 40 and, and 65 is the prime target. But everybody, you know, the reality is it's lots of people in their 20s, but they just you know can't afford what they really want. So it becomes aspirational. And Would you ever make a men's line? Maybe some cufflinks for Christmas. I, I've made cufflinks. I've made tuxedo buttons. And I got my son, actually, to help me uh, at the Pad Art Fair where we exhibited very last minute last year. And one of my staff had already planned holidays because it was a two-week notice. We, we took a stand. Someone else got ill. And so I told my son, you know, this Sunday, you're home. I need you. You need to work. And that's that. And he said, sure. And, of course, as he is, he tried on all the jewelry, which none of it, being at the time, was 17. And, and the big guy almost nothing fit but you know put on a drink and in the end it was quite interesting because I designed for myself I never really designed for men in even when I did the cufflings I then barred my husband's black white tie and tried it on myself but totally I mean I've, I've made brooches that I think would look, look great on men and my son tried on a ring and he really liked it and and I gifted it to him but you know it just really depends what you like and I'm very open-minded if, if I've made a, I had an ice cream ring and I had a man who was an art dealer he said I really want this and I said uh, okay so you do uh, commissions for men, but you don't actually have a, a full line? 
I don't have a full line. And actually, there's another mm. woman who came to me and, and wanted an anniversary present for her husband's 70th birthday. And so it was a personalized piece. And actually, it was great fun because it's really challenging because I have to like it. I'm not going to make something I don't like. And then any piece that is custom made, just because development costs add up, it always costs a lot more than a piece that you've developed a design and then you can sell a series up. But those are very challenging. I actually have a commission that's led me to this new collection. Because it's your 20th anniversary, I've gone through all your collection. You've done about eight, nine collections so far. Is that right? I've lost count. I think in the book there are eight. Okay. Can you just touch upon three that I love? Pottering around your latest, Glow, which I think is amazing, and the story of how copper molds came about. Just touch upon them quickly so the audience can really get an idea. So I'm probably best known for this collection called Copper Mold, which really happened. You know, I was at one of my goldsmiths. Um, workshops in Appenzell, which is the town where I'm actually from, my family's originally from, and we were developing something else, and then we were, you know, want to actually broach from myself, and then, you know, he's very old-fashioned, takes a bit like school, you know, at 10 or 10.30, he has, goes around the corner and has a coffee break, because he doesn't have a coffee in the house, but, you know, just goes to coffee next door and comes back and four o'clock has a coffee break again, and and so I was kind of waiting for this coffee break because I remember my great aunt used to send me, you know, these biscuits with hazelnuts that, you know, you can't really get anywhere in Switzerland except, and I was like, oh, great, we have coffee, I'm going to get one of those. And then, of course, I went and I saw the design of all these pastries and I just thought, actually, how cool, you know, in a way, pastry sh chefs are just packaging designers. It's food graphically packaged. It's a way of making things... Um, food interesting in a graphic way. And so I guess I was a bit bored waiting for this coffee break and I started painting these, this pastry on my paper because I didn't know, I guess I wasn't feeling inspired. So the first thing that came to my head was this. And I think that's actually very valid. I think people often can say why things happen at a certain time. Sometimes it's just zeitgeist. Then I drew another thing and then my goldsmith said, that's quite cool, but you know, what about this? And came out with a copper mold that he had somewhere stored in the back. And I said, that sounds cool. And then he made a mini model and, and it kind of just spiraled from there. Um, and I remember when we first met again a few months later with all the prototypes for the drawings we made. And I thought, oh, these are so cool. And I thought, everybody's going to make fun of me because I was all of 2008. I was 27, 28. Everybody's going to say, oh, this is like a girly thing and it's what's stupid stuff. And, and I just thought whatever, I'm just going to make this because I think I really like it. And it's amazing, actually. It really took off. And I remember also almost all the prototypes, you know, the prototype was, and it was just perfect from, from day one. And I still make them, but they're all unique, so every colorway is different. So if you bought one 10 years ago, each one is made today is just different, and I've come across different gemstones, so I can make different ones. And then much later, I made a glow show which I exhibited at Louisa Guinness Gallery. So Louisa at the time only showed artist jewelry. And actually, I think it was the first solo show that she ever had, only one, of a person who's not just primarily an artist, but primarily a jeweler um, at her gallery. The Glow Show was all about, because I read a book about this, um, Victoria Finlay wrote a book about traveling through my jewelry box. And it was about traveling to different places where the source of the material of the gems in her jewelry box come from. And she was talking about how rubies in Burma really glow and, and have more fluorescence, or all have fluorescence, unlike certain 
I still actually think almost all proper rubies fluoresce, but anyway, they really fluoresce and so they're valued more. And then I was thinking, but aren't diamonds worth less if they fluoresce? And then I was like, this is kind of crazy. Like how come like diamonds, it's considered a bad thing. And then with rubies, it's considered a good thing. And I thought, you know what? Go to the Natural History Museum, those rooms where you get the minerals that where the UV goes on and the normal light goes on, it goes back and forth. And it's just the coolest thing ever. So I thought, let me make a show centered about this. And I went and did research about gems and minerals and back and forth. And in the end, most of the show ended up being a kind of retrospective because I made lots of pieces that I made it before, but just using fluorescent gemstones. I made a brooch, which is like a painting, an abstract painting, but it had rubies instead of background. So it had just like spots glowed or um, I also made another ring called a disco ring because of course, the big jewelry houses did not want to have fluorescent gemstones anymore because when you made a jewel with lots of little stones and you went to a disco and you only had about a, a, some of them fluoresced and some in majority blue, but the odd ones white, it just looks messy and ugly. So at that rate, the big houses kind of said no, no fluorescence. And then the, the Japanese were big buyers at that time of diamonds and they felt it was not pure to have fluorescence. They wanted pure, pure, perfect. And so they didn't want diamonds that fluoresced the Indians then and never and to now just don't care because it's actually totally unimportant. And so kind of that's why this, this whole obsession with no fluorescent happened with the big houses. But reality is it's just, it's just such a cool natural phenomenon. And rubies almost all fluoresce and lots of sapphires do. So it's actually great fun. My son was going and he discovered something else that was fluorescent, which I had no idea was fluorescent. It's just, it's great fun. And then potting around, using a pot as a way to then have a bouquet of flowers and using gemstones to do flowers has always been part of jewelry. There are many little brooches by Cartier or other people who have made a teeny pot and then a huge bouquet. Whereas I kind of decided that the pot was going to be kind of more important than necessarily the plant. And I kind of like the contrast between the graphic and the organic. The rigid sculptural vessels containing the uncontrollable plants. I'm about to use that someday, I don't know why, but I love how that's phrased. What I really also like is that every time you launch a collection, it's not just a collection on a, uh, on a stand. You actually make it quite uh, immersive and also um, completely immersive. It's always an exhibition. So for example, we mentioned Glow and Music in this gallery. And uh, the books. And the books, we'll get to that, we'll get okay. to that. And then also I loved Color and Contradiction and you had a colouring wall, which you launched it at Art Basel, Miami? Yeah, so I, I made a colouring in book. So, um, but also a wall? Yes, but the, the reason I made the wall was to because we basically launched. I launched the collection. I didn't have enough money to launch the collection, to not sell anything before the book came out. So the pieces started coming. I started selling them. But then I only launched the book at this curious space in Miami. And we made an entire wall that you could colour in. Because the idea is that there's lots of possibilities and each version is unique. You could choose different gemstones and test it out by coloring in. And really the wall was inspired by the Can book. Say that, that's an awesome idea. But we made the book, even the text in the book is to color in. Nice. So the book has to be good enough that it's an artwork in its own right. It's not just a catalog. Obviously, you, you think of kids coloring in. I know there's adult coloring books at the moment, which I'm finding a bit weird. But who did you target with that? Who did you think would actually colour in? And what did you expect from that? Well, maybe that a client would want to colour it in to see, you know, I really like this ring. And at the back, it has kind of different colours and stones and you could try it out. I mean, I had one person, she's an artist. She kind of cr 
turn the, this book into an, her own artwork, which was kind of taken aback. And and uh, and I hope some people did give it to their kids. And because you know who wants a jewelry catalog? I mean, I just actually bought some old jewelry catalogs on eBay, but. 90% of the time, like who wants that stuff? It's like such a pain in the neck and people bin it. Like, honestly, what's the point? So it's really innovative. I, I'm really impressed by that. And also you did the cloud collection where you actually launched a fashion show at Paradise yeah. Row. Yeah. <laughs> you know why? Because I love brooches. Brooches is probably my favorite jewel to create. You look sad when I mentioned that. Not sad, you know what? It's like, it's a, a huge expense. It's a huge thing to do. Would I do it today? You know, it's it was great to do. Often with a lot of businesses, people go to business school and told how to run a business and launch a business. You know, you have a three or five year plan and then you have to make it back and all of this. But in the creative field, reality is you have to take risk. And when I did this show with Adeline Lee and she did clothes so we could put brooches on it, I could show people that brooches were actually young and interesting and not just for old women, but for young women too. Nobody wanted to go up to the woman because jewels are actually small, but nobody wanted to come up and inspect a woman. It was considered like, you know, men are way too self-conscious, you know, if they have any self-respect to go up and inspect near a woman's bosom or be too close to them. So actually the whole jewelry in the lineup were far away and everybody socialized at the other end of the room. For all the money and time we spent doing this, you kind of think, oh my God, was it worth it? I mean, it was great for Adeline. She, it helped her kind of launch her career. And in the short run, it was not really a success. I mean, the event was great. People really liked it, but did it really pay for itself? But, you know, I had one client that came two years ago, two or three, and she said, oh, you know, I came to that show 11 years ago. It was so cool. Now I can afford to buy something. It's like nine years later. So you're like, okay, when you make things and when you do things in any creative field, you might do a fair and you might not make your money back at that moment, but you don't actually know if that is the first time or the second time you meet someone who ends up becoming a very important client later. And so I think that's also really important. You know, you said, how, how do you stay 20 years in business and not give up? I think you have to have thick skin, long-term vision. You know, I had kids very young so I launched my business pregnant and in the end of the day I really worked part-time at the beginning and I actually almost gave up I said I'm gonna just sell the rest I have because I've got kids and I don't see them enough and I've got this business and it's not working and like what's the point was like it, I just feel stressed how early in your business career was that was I it think very my, early? my second son was two so it was 2007 five years in so you launched what one or two collections no it was a year before I made the first book no, was it after that? I, you know what? I don't know. It's just all too long ago. But anyway, I just felt like nothing's working properly. I'm not taking care of my kids properly. And there's no way to make it work. And the reality is, for a lot of women, this idea that you can balance and make it work and find a balance and find a balance, guess what? That's just fake news. There is no perfect balance. It doesn't exist. So if you feel like you're striving out to get it, it's like saying the grass is green on the other side. It's just there's, there's no such thing. It's always a compromise. It's never perfect. And somehow I, I got a break. I, a friend said, come and show at pad two. You know, we've got a bit of extra space. You just come along as well. And there for the first time, I got interest from beyond friends and family. And I sold quite an expensive piece to someone I didn't know at all. And it kind of gave me the confidence and boost to say, actually, this works. It gives me confidence and a kind of 
and I never looked back since then. I mean, there's times that it's difficult and uh, uh, stressful because you're trying to do two things at the same time. I have many entrepreneurs and jewelers listening to this. What is the best advice you'd give them in terms of staying in business, apart from long-term vision and, and you know sticking it out? Um, what have you learned that you'd like to pass on? Well, you know, I've done it all so differently than a lot of people. I think, you know, it depends how much time you have to, to commit to things. You know, in some ways, I never worked for someone else. And I think that gave me the naivety to do it because actually there's so much complexity, like customs and insurance, something that doesn't exist in the art world the way it does in the jewelry. You have it, you know, you can go with a painting over customs. Jewelry is in the same category as cash. It can be an alternative cash assets. So it's money, money laundering, it's much bigger on the money laundering able list. It's so much more complicated to travel, to sell jewelry internationally. In America, you can't sell new jewelry easily. Very difficult. So in a way, it's good to work someone else. You know how the business runs and you understand it. But also if you do that, it can just put you off because you see the amount and you've got to climb. And so sometimes the naivety allows you to be independent. When I first started, a lot of places, fashion houses or other places started selling jewelry. So I remember Dover Street Market opened and they were starting to sell jewelry or net porter started carrying jewelry. And they came to me, I mean, Dosti Carvica came back to me in 2008 when they first drank jewelry and said, do you want to show here? And, you know, the place was cool. It was different like anywhere else at the time. But the reality was going to make zero money, probably because I really wanted to make things in Europe and have everything be unique. And of course, alternatively, you, you make a business where you, you're, you're selling wholesale and you have to work in a different way. And at the time, I couldn't make that work. The way I set up my business till then did not work selling wholesale. And I think you have to very early on decide wholesale or not, because if you then decide to sell wholesale because you think it's a way to gain visibility, that can put the nail on your coffin and it can destroy you and then you're left with stuff. So I think the idea that you should sell things for no profit for just for visibility I actually think is a bad idea you undermine the entire market if you sell things at no profit then those people that have to sell things that are profit or reasonable can't and it kind of it's not good for you in the long run so I think that's a one thing that people have to stay away from this idea of like oh well it's just the beginning you want to get known and that's a really terrible idea and, you know, there's so many different places in the jewelry world. You can design for other people. You can be part of a team. You can... Doing it all is kind of crazy. Don't ask me why I thought I could do it. The reality is you make money with the gemstones. And if you really want to make money, it's with the gemstones. Like it or not. Last question, but it's on the jewelry world. What do you love and what do you lament about the jewelry world? Well, I love jewellery and I love wearing jewellery. I like the way it makes me feel and I love being around different people. So I had people over last night for a fundraising dinner and it was so nice to see a friend and she had a gorgeous necklace on it. She just looked really great on it and she loves jewellery. And it's just nice to be around people who also like to wear jewellery and how it makes them feel and, and people that are curious and like history and want to understand it and dig in archives and share things with you. I, I love wearing jewellery. I feel naked when I don't wear jewellery. So I love all that. What I lament about the jewelry world, the idea that we all have to be very weary of thieves and robbers. The reason I do not have a store is because I don't want to go to work on it every day worrying about being robbed and the amount of staff you have to run a store. I mean, it's just insane compared to the art world. And I really hate more than anything else customs. I mean, you need carnets and temporary import papers and shipping and brokers. And, you know, the first time I came to London, I 
got something from Switzerland. I got a stamp saying my goldsmith didn't have to charge me tax because I'm going abroad. And then I came and I went through the red channel and said, I want to pay taxes because this is a piece of good. And he's like, oh, commercial goods can't help you. You need a broker. I'm like, what do you mean you need a broker? I mean, like, I'm trying to pay my taxes legally. He's like, oh, sorry, I can't help you. There's a building in Heathrow that all commercial things, their imports, are all processed in an office in Terminal 3. Every single customs broker and officer and everything, he can't even do anything. You try to do things properly. In America, they don't want other people to sell jewelry. If you're not got a business based in America, they don't care if you're old jewelry, be easy peasy. New jewelry, headache. Going through other places, hoops and VAT and all this stuff that I despise. It's the worst. If you know about it, it can put you off on the entire business. Point made. <laughs> um, I want to, uh, as we kind of head towards the, the end of this brilliant and fascinating podcast, I want to just go back to the art and just touch upon a few things. Which periods of art do you love and what do you collect? I like all periods of art and I like lots of art forms. So I like design, I, not just paintings or sculptures and... Uh, but, you know, every time I buy a new glass, you know, just glasses to use as drinking glasses, I know who designed them. So it doesn't really matter what I buy, if it's really mundane. I kind of care about that. Which artists or designers had a major impact on you personally and through their work? <sighs> Lots of people. I think, you know, originally, like you said, Etre Sotsas was a, maybe just because he was around a lot right at that time when I... Um, decided to look into art and design more. And I did actually an internship in the graphic design department of his office when I was 17. Although I kind of realized at that point that they spent their entire day in front of a computer, which is kind of why I decided I wasn't going to be a graphic designer or go into that. Um, I thought you might be discovered for being creative, but then told what to do and then sit your entire day in front of the computer, which is why I thought packaging and I liked something a bit more three-dimensional and I like problem solving. And artists, I don't, I, I'm influenced by everything and periods. I mean, if I could, I'd love to collect Renaissance portraiture because a lot of them also are full of jewelry, which is pretty great. Yeah. I think collecting jewelry is a real niche that can, you can still amass a pretty amazing collection of jewelry, which in the art world is just out of reach for 99, whereas jewelry is not nearly as expensive. And where would you go for that? You go to auctions, you go to... Yeah, there's dealers, there's auctions, dealers, you go everything. to fairs, you know, and you buy books. It's exactly like the art world. Start looking, start looking at museums, read books, different opinions, see what dealers, you like their aesthetic, what different people say, who you feel you can trust. And then over time, you build your own knowledge. What has been your favorite art exhibition? I'm always newly inspired by new things. And maybe it's the ones that really are unexpected. There was an opera show at the v &A. I was thinking, you know, why an opera show? And I just thought, actually, this was a fabulous show, but partly because my expectations were so low. So if you go to a show where you're expecting something's fantastic and it's not, you know, it's very hard, you know. Um, and it's also the most recent things. You know, I love the Donatella show at the v and I love the collaborations exhibition in Paris. If I could, the show I really want to see at the moment is one on crystal objects, in the Musée de Cluny in Paris. It's all about medieval crystals and it's got quite a lot of jewelry in it. So if I could travel for a show right now, that's where I'd want to go. But it's always different. You know, I, I'm not, there's not one thing that stands out more. It's always the new thing, the next thing. It's an endless journey.
You told me recently that the Bischofberg family, Berger family, sorry, are the most painted family. You have a whole selection of portraits. Which artist, living or dead, would you commission to do your portrait? Oh, I like this question. And I was thinking, I would love to have a Picasso portrait and a Bronzino portrait. Picasso, me too. Of course. Uh, and a Bronzino. Nice. Because I think he does skin beautifully. But I, I actually really love things like Cronach, or actually I was thinking a Holbein portrait would be pretty fab. I actually really love portraiture. And there was a time when I took photographs and had my own camera as a child, and I was thinking, you know, I'm going to take photographs, and we were, you know, on a, on a holiday trip, but, you know, it was really from art work to art place and art place. But then I was like, you know, I can't take taking pictures of, like, a monument. I mean, it's kind of boring, and the books are probably better. Actually, what I really like when I looked at the albums of my parents was the car they drove and the people and the clothes. So I said, you know, forget it. I'm not stop going to take photos of all that stuff. I want to take photographs of things that are of that period that changed. So I took a photo of the car on our road trip and people. And I think in a way, if I would start collecting or things, I really want something that captures that period, you know, the clothes and, you know, but I, you know, there's lots, I could, I could cook, name a whole few. I, I'd love it. And of course now with AI, you could say, I want a Picasso style portrait of me. I want this and this, you know, you could have all it done. Cora, this has been fascinating and wonderful in equal measures. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nolan. <laughs> <laughs>